Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, and chapter 2, 1 to 17. Let the lowly person boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a person wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a person in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor person, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved sisters and brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor person. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The word of the Lord. We are in a series on the book of James. And the book of James is, uh, it's all about how to do life as a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, James asks the question, um, okay, you say you're a Christian, great, I'm glad to hear it, but if you are, then here's what your life should look like, does it? One of the main things that James does in this book is he gives us a series of tests or marks. He says there are certain things that should mark a Christian's life in order to know whether or not their faith is real. Um, It's kind of like if you had a a necklace and, and you weren't sure if it was real gold or not. How can you tell if the necklace is really gold? Uh, One of the main tests you can do is on the clasp of the necklace, 
um, there's always going to be a little mark there. It'll either say something like 14K or, or 24K. The presence of the mark means that you can know it's real. In the same way, James is saying that there are certain things that should mark the life of every single, question, uh, every single Christian. Um, and so he gives us a series of tests, a series of marks, but each one of these things is radically countercultural. You know, we live in a world that is constantly pulling us to think and to act and to live in certain ways. It's kind of like being caught in a riptide. You know, um, it's really hard to get out of the current because it's just so strong. You can't pull away from it. James is saying that in the same way, um, a Christian's life should be marked by these things, but it's really hard to get pulled out of the current of the world, that we have to constantly pushing and swimming against the current of those things. So in the first two weeks of this series in chapter 1, James introduced us to these tests. But now here at the beginning of chapter 2, we're beginning to go into these things more in depth. And the first test, the first mark that James gives us here at the beginning of chapter 2 is our relationship with the poor. But it's a very particular kind of relationship. Um, I'm going to do something actually a little out of the ordinary this morning. Normally, my job during the introduction to a sermon is to tell all of you why you need to pay attention to everything I'm about to say. Uh, My job during the introduction of a sermon is to tell you, why does this matter? Why is this relevant? Why should you pay attention to me for the next half hour? Any good public speaking, they they always tell you that's what you're supposed to do. you got to tell people why this matters. I'm not going to do it this morning. The reason is because um, the main message of this passage is so counterintuitive that as soon as I tell you what it is, and I'm about to do that in just a second, as soon as I tell it to you, all kinds of questions are going to come up in your mind. You're going to think, how can he say that? What does that mean? I'm skeptical. Tell me more. The main message of this passage is simply this, that you need the poor more than they need you. You need the poor far, far more than they need you. What does that mean, and how can that be true? Let's unpack it this morning by seeing three things, all right? First, we're going to see what we should do. Secondly, we're going to see that something needs to happen in order for us to be able to do that. And lastly, we're going to see how that something happens, okay? What we should do, something needs to happen to us in order to do it, and how that something happens, okay? First, what we should do. Um, The very first thing we learn in this passage is that the church is supposed to do justice and mercy. Now, if if you look at verses 2 and 3, James gets into it. Uh, He talks about a rich person who comes into the church wearing fine clothing and a poor person who comes into the church wearing shabby clothing. And then he says that if you look at the rich person, you say, well, sit here in this good place. And then you turn to the poor person, you say, you sit on the floor over there. Look at how he puts what's happening in verse 4. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Do you realize what this is? This is discrimination. It's, It's segregation, right? Rich people over here, poor people over there. That's what is going on here. James is saying not in the church. In the world, that may be the way things get done, but not in the church, never in the church. And notice, it's not just one kind of discrimination that he's talking about. In verse 1, that word partiality there is actually in the plural. He's saying there are many different kinds of discrimination that we could fall into. 
James is saying that in the church, there should never be any kind of discrimination on any basis whatsoever. No racial discrimination, no gender discrimination, no cultural discrimination, no economic or class discrimination, none of it. It shouldn't be present in the church. Now, obviously, that is very much not the case, not just in the world around us, but even in the church. So, for instance, Martin Luther King very famously once said that it is one of the shameful tragedies of our nation that 11 o'clock is oftentimes the most segregated hour in Christian America. He said that in 1960, and the same thing is still true. Now, it would be easy to say, well, that just means that Christianity is a failed project and we should just get rid of it. It it would be easy to say that, and a lot of people do say that, but... If you're saying that this morning, I want to point out just a couple of things. And the first one is this. Will you notice that the Bible is always the first voice leading the critique of the church? The Bible is always the first voice leading the critique of the church. There is no condemnation or criticism that you can ever level against the church that the Bible hasn't already beaten you to the punch. James, the person who wrote this letter, was one of the first great leaders of the early church. And yet here he is rebuking the church for its faults and its failures. You can never bring a critique or a condemnation against the church that the Bible hasn't already beaten you to the punch. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, if you look at the Hebrew prophets, they're always rebuking Israel for their idolatry and their injustice. Or if you look at the New Testament writers, uh, many of them are rebuking the church for its various faults and failures. Even Jesus... um, His strongest words of condemnation were always for the religious leaders. You can never critique or condemn the church in any way that the Bible hasn't already beaten you to the punch. But it's even more amazing than that because not only is that true, but here's the thing. People often critique the church. And and it's right, we should critique the church. But, But why do we critique the church? What's the basis of the critique? A lot of times it's for things like this. It's for the church's failure to uphold the worth and dignity of every human being. Or it's for things like a failure to fight against oppression and abuse. Or it's for the church's failure oftentimes to care for the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society. Here's the question. Where did those values come from? Where do those values come from? In our culture, it's easy to think, oh, well, everybody knows these things are true. That's just common sense. You know, the old great writer David Foster Wallace um, always used to talk about fish and water. He told the story, you know, of the fish swimming in the water, and he comes upon two other fish swimming in the opposite direction, and he says, hey, good morning, guys. How's the water today? And the other fish look at each other and go, what's water? We just live in, in our cultural mindset. We don't even question it. We just think, that things like human rights and equality and dignity and freedom and democracy and caring for the poor and weak, that's just common sense. We just think that's just the way things are. We don't even notice it. It's like water to us. But do you know where those values really came from? We talk um, often here about Frederick Nietzsche. I'm a little bit of a fan. Um, Not only was he one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, um, I've actually been reading a lot more by him and about him. Um, Not only was he one of the greatest philosophers whoever lived. Nietzsche was actually an expert in ancient languages and ancient cultures and ancient history. One of the things he was constantly saying was that all of these values that are so important to us in Western culture, things like human rights, 
and equality for all people. Things like freedom and democracy and caring for the poor and the weak. He said that the only reason we value those things in Western culture is because those things are an inheritance from Christianity. But it's even stronger than that. Not only does Nietzsche say that the only reason we have those things in Western culture is because they come to us from Christianity. He says that if, um, if you're an atheist or if you're skeptical about Christianity and yet you still embrace these values, he says you're being intellectually dishonest. He was constantly criticizing his secular, liberal, humanistic contemporaries because they wanted to reject Christianity on the one hand, but still hang on to all these liberal values on the other hand. He said, you're being intellectually dishonest. Friends, not only is the Bible always the leading voice in the critique of the church, you can't even begin to critique the church without using Christian categories. That's where they come from. Now, what's the point? The point is that the solution to all the injustice and the discrimination that exists inside of the church, and it does, the solution to that is not to get rid of Christianity, but to get deeper into Christianity. If you notice in verse 1, what does James say? He says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying that the solution to injustice and discrimination in the church is not to get rid of Christianity, but to hold more tightly to it. You notice he says how we hold the faith. The solution is not to let go of Christianity, but to get a better grip on it. Friends, the church must be doing justice. That means the absence of discrimination in the church. But James also says that the church should also be doing mercy. It's not just the absence of discrimination. It's also the presence of mercy. He talks about that in verse 13, where he says that judgment will be shown without mercy to those who show no mercy. Now, when we hear the word mercy, a lot of times it's easy for us to think um, of an inner feeling, um, an inner attitude of kindness and benevolence and forgiveness towards people. But that's not what James is saying here. And we know that's true because immediately after he talks about mercy, he goes into another little case study. It's all about a poor person who's naked and hungry. And he says that if you don't take care of that person's needs, then you're failing to show mercy. That's what mercy means. That is the biblical definition of mercy. It's not just warm fuzzies. Biblical mercy is actually caring for the physical, tangible, material needs of poor people. So, for instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, Jesus, in that very famous parable, he actually shows us a picture of someone who did mercy. And what did they do? They, they bound up the wounds of somebody who was beaten and injured. He carried that person to a place of safety provided for that person's well-being, and he paid for that person's rehabilitation out of his own pocket. That, Jesus says, is what it means to do mercy. The biblical definition of mercy is not just warm fuzzies. It's actually caring for the physical, tangible needs of people that are hurt and poor. Now, one more thing before we need to uh, move on. Not only is James telling us that the church ought to be a community of justice and mercy, he's saying that this is not a suggestion. This is not like an optional add-on um, to Christianity. You can take it or leaving. No, he says this is an absolute commandment. If you look at, there's a paragraph there, verses 8 through 12. It's a kind of an extended discussion about the law and about the Ten Commandments. He talks about a couple of them. One of the basic things that James is saying in that paragraph right there is that if we fail to do justice and mercy as a community of God's people, that it's the same thing as if we broke one of the Ten Commandments. It's that serious. 
In fact, in verse 13, again, James says that judgment will be shown without mercy to those who show no mercy. This is such a big deal to God, James is saying, that if we fail to live like this, God is actually going to judge the church. Whoa. Friends, the church is called to be a community of justice and mercy. But that leads to our second point. We've just seen what we should do. But, but the second question is, okay, something needs to happen in order to enable us to do this. Because everything we've just been talking about, you know, we should be a community of justice and mercy. You know, that's really not all that countercultural, is it? In our culture, we like that. Our, in our culture, it's actually cool to be into justice and mercy. But that actually leads us to an even deeper problem. And the problem is this. If we were to just stop the sermon right here, we need to be a people of justice and mercy. Yeah, that's true. But if we just stopped right there, it would be really easy for us to just go out in the world and say, yeah, we're going to be the ones who are on the side of justice and mercy. We're going to be the ones who get it. We're going to be the ones who are in the know, not like those other people who don't get it. We're not like them. Do you see what's happening? Friends, unless something happens that changes the fundamental structure of our hearts, then when we move out into the world to fight against superiority and discrimination, it's all it's going to do is make the superiority and discrimination in our own hearts even worse. How does that change? What needs to happen to us? Some of you might think, well, we should cultivate humility in our lives. And I would agree that it's good to be humble, but have you ever caught yourself being humble? And, and then you thought to yourself, oh, look, I'm being humble. <laughs> How wonderful. Wonderful moi. And then all, what you do is you start looking around and you start comparing yourself to all the other people in the world who aren't quite as humble as you are. And all of a sudden, you're not being humble anymore, are you? Nothing's changed in your heart. What has to happen to our hearts in order to make us people who can really practice justice and mercy without ramping up the pride and superiority in our own hearts? Look at how James puts it in verse 5, okay? He says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? What's James saying here? He's saying that on the surface, it, it kind of sounds like James is saying that only economically poor people can become Christians, but he can't be saying that because the Bible has lots of rich people who were heroes of the faith. So, for instance, Abraham was rich. Job was rich. When Jesus called tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus, tax collectors were rich. So James can't be saying that only poor people can become Christians. But on the other hand, it is true that by and large, uh, poor people, economically poor people, are far, far more open to the gospel than rich people are. Why is that? It's because the gospel says that, that God's strength and power does not come into the world through strength and power. It comes into the world through weakness and poverty. So, so poor people, by and large, are far more open to the gospel as a result of that. So look at how James puts this. He says, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. Now, when he talks about being poor in the world, that's talking about economic resources. But when he talks about being rich in faith, that's talking about spiritual resources. What's going on here? What James is saying is that there are actually two kinds of poverty. There's economic poverty, but there's also spiritual poverty. In fact, we could put it this way. Economic poverty is actually a window 
into a truer, deeper kind of poverty that we all experience. What is that poverty? Um, at the beginning of your passage this week, you'll notice that we actually printed a couple of verses from chapter 1 that we didn't talk about a couple of weeks ago when we were going through that passage because I wanted to save those verses for this discussion this week. If you look at the very beginning of your passage in, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, James says, Let the lowly person boast in his exaltation and the rich person in his humiliation. In other words, James is saying that the poor Christians should boast in their high position, but the rich Christians should boast in their low position. In other words, James is saying that, you know, in the world, you can be either low or high. But according to the gospel, if you're a Christian, you're always both low and high. That's what he's saying. So James is saying to the poor Christian, look, in the world's eyes, you may be a nobody, but in God's eyes, you're a somebody because he's called you to inherit the kingdom of God. That's a high position. But then he turns around and he says to the rich Christian, look, in the world's eyes, you may be somebody, but in God's eyes, you are still a sinner in desperate need of grace. Do you see how this works? It's really quite amazing what he's saying. The world, in the world's eyes, you're either low or you're high. But according to the gospel, if you're a Christian, you're both low and high. You're both a sinner in desperate need of salvation, but you're also a child of God chosen to be saved by grace and to inherit the kingdom of God for those who love him. Dear ones, one of the main things that this passage is teaching us is that economic poverty is really nothing more than a window. It's a, it's a picture, it's a clue into a deeper, truer kind of poverty, into spiritual poverty. What is spiritual poverty? What does that mean? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that James, he gets into the main storyline of the Bible a little bit at one point. What's the main storyline of the Bible? The Bible says that in the beginning, God created this world to be a place of perfection, um, a place of harmony and flourishing and wholeness. But because of human rebellion, because of human sin, we rebelled against God. And when that happened, everything starts to fall apart. So you can read about this in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that because of our rebellion, because of our sin, that resulted in brokenness in all these different areas of our life. It's really fascinating the way Genesis 3 lays it out. First, our relationship with God is broken. And you see that because the first humans, they begin hiding from God. Secondly, um, our relationship with ourself is broken. It talks about how shame began to be introduced into our experience. Thirdly, um, our relationship with each other is broken. Um, you'll notice that Adam starts blaming Eve because of what happened in the garden. But fourthly and lastly, um, it talks about how our relationship with the world around us is broken. It says that God cursed the ground. Our work is now toilsome. That God cursed the childbearing process. It's now painful. Do you see what this means? We're alienated from God. We're alienated from ourselves. We're alienated from each other. We're alienated from the whole world around us. That is real poverty. It's, it's a poverty of relationship with God. It's, it's a poverty of wholeness and fullness and relationship with God that leads to all the other kinds of poverty that we experience in this world. Friends, economic poverty is never the deepest poverty. And if you don't believe me, 
And if you don't even necessarily believe the Bible, then listen to what actual poor people say about this. I read a book several years ago in which the authors of the book actually interviewed um, economically poor people from all over the world and asked them to describe their experience of economic poverty. So listen to what some of these people actually say about their experience. Here's someone from Moldova. He says, For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Or here's someone from Guinea-Bissau. They say, when I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the, the family. I'm not well when I'm unemployed. It's terrible. Or listen to this person from Latvia. They say, during the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. You notice what every single one of these statements has in common? They're not really talking about money, are they? They're talking about how they feel. They're talking about their inner experience of shame and, and the broken relationships that they experience in their lives. Friends, we have a tendency normally, almost always, to think of poverty only in economic terms. But this is showing us that there's a truer, deeper poverty, a spiritual poverty that's a poverty of our relationship with God. And that leads to all the other kinds of poverty that we experience in this world. What has to happen to our hearts in order to make us the kind of people that can go out into the world and do justice and mercy without making the pride and the superiority in our own hearts even worse. What has to happen? Simply this. We have to see our own poverty. We have to see our own poverty. We have to see that in God's eyes, we're the ones that are dressed in the shabby clothing. What does James say? God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. Do you see your own poverty? Can you see it? Remember the gospel. It says that God's strength and power comes into the world not through strength and power, but through weakness and poverty. So for instance, uh, the reason poor people so often are far, far more open to the gospel, it's much easier for them to embrace the gospel, is because poor people already know what it is to be weak and in need. But middle class people, rich people, people with resources people who are educated, people who are the elites of this world, people who are in power in this world, people with resources, it's much, much harder. And that's why, for instance, it's, it's not enough simply to just cultivate humility in our hearts. Because what is humility? It's a virtue that makes it a resource, right? If, if you make your virtue the reason that you know that God loves you and accepts you, then what you're doing is you're approaching God from a position of strength. You want to be in a high position before God. You don't want to be in a low position of God before God. You don't want to be in a place of need before God. You want to be in a high position, a position of strength before God. Friends, that is the default mode of every single human heart. So, for instance, one of the best examples of this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Very famous sermon that Jesus preached in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount were, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whenever we read that, the default way that we read poor in spirit is it's inevitable that people think when Jesus says you got to be poor in spirit, we think he means being humble. That's not what he means. There's a word in the Bible for humility. It's a very, very common word. Jesus doesn't use that word. Jesus does not say that we have to be humble in spirit. He says we have to be poor in spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. Is poverty a virtue? Be careful. It's easy to idealize the poor. You know, very often we look at poor people and we idealize them. Oh, poor people. They're so virtuous. They're so humble. They're so noble. Don't do that. Friends, remember what we heard, those statements from the poor people we just listened to. Poverty in and of itself is not a virtue. Yes, it can produce virtues, just like any hardship or suffering has the the capacity to produce virtue in our life, but poverty in and of itself is never a virtue. It is a state or a condition of abject, utter emptiness and need. Poverty is never a virtue. And yet, we look at Jesus, and when we hear him say that we have to be poor in spirit, because we can't bear the reality of what that really means, we want to take poor in spirit and turn it into a virtue. It's kind of like, you know, the autocorrect feature on your phones? You know how it's always taking something that you said and turning it into something that's completely ridiculous? So maybe you pick up your phone, and you say something like, you're going to dictate a message, and you say, "Um, can't talk on the phone right now call you back later. What comes out is, cacophony is so highbrow, butt dial, you hater. (laughs) What? Darn autocorrect. Of course, if you say something like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, it gets that right. And yes, I tried it. Say, we, we do the same thing as autocorrect. Autocorrect is always mistranslating things. When we look at what Jesus says about being poor in spirit, we want to translate that into virtue because we can't bear the thought, we can't bear the reality that we can only approach God from a place of need, from a place of abject emptiness. It tears us apart. So we want to take our virtue, we want to take our humility, we want to take poor in spirit and turn that into a virtue so that we can be before God in a position of strength, in a high position, so that we'll say, God, you know, I'm not a perfect person. Nobody is, but, but I'm not like other people. I'm trying to be a good person. And you should accept me on the basis of that. See, we don't want to be in a position of weakness before God. But unless we're allowing ourselves to really come to God and be in that position of weakness and poverty before him, then our hearts can never be changed and our relationship with God can never really be restored. And unless that happens, then when we go out into the world to practice justice and mercy, all that's going to happen is we're going to remain infected with the spiritual cancer of pride, superiority, and discrimination. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that what we should do is be a community of justice and mercy. But we've also seen that that what needs to happen to us in order to do that is we need to become capable of seeing our own spiritual poverty. But that leads to our last point. How does that actually happen? How does that actually happen? The only way that that can happen is to find a radically new basis for our identity. And friends, that is exactly what the gospel does for us. How is that? If you look at verse 1, you notice that James is talking about how we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But did you notice at the very end of that, he tacks on this little phrase. He calls Jesus the Lord of glory. 
Now, why does he do that? Is that just arbitrary? Like a little literary flourish? Oh, Jesus, the Lord of glory. No, it's not arbitrary. James is making a point. What is his point? Well, we can see what his point is by what he says next. Because immediately after calling Jesus the Lord of glory, the very next thing he does is he gives us this case study. He tells us this little parable about the rich person who came in wearing the fine clothing and the poor person who came in wearing the shabby clothing. What he's saying is that if, if you look at the rich person and the poor person and you begin making dis- distinctions and discriminating be- between those people, it's because you haven't really begun to understand the glory of Jesus. Because when James talks about the glory of Jesus, he means a lot more than just that that Jesus is some kind of cosmic light bulb. In the Bible, glory, it means status. It means that something matters. It means importance. It means significance. To say that Jesus is the Lord of glory is to say that he matters infinitely more, that he is infinitely more important and infinitely more significant than anything else in the world. What James is saying that that if we see, if we really saw the glory of the Lord Jesus, that all of a sudden, all these little distinctions we make between rich people and poor people and every other kind of distinction, that all of those distinctions would suddenly become utterly meaningless. But it's even more than that. Because not only is James saying, making this comparison between Jesus' glory and all the little distinctions we make in this world, He's also saying that this is a parable of what happened when Jesus, the Lord of glory, entered this world. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate rich person. Jesus Christ has the ultimate significance, ultimate importance. He has the ultimate status. You know, in in our world, it's really easy. We get so impressed with people who are rich and famous get a little captivated. If somebody walked in right now, somebody like a celebrity or a sports hero walked in here right now, we'd all be a little starstruck. But friends, Jesus Christ made the stars. He created the universe and hung the stars in the sky. That's wealth. That's power. That's honor. That is significance. Jesus Christ is robed in a beauty and a glory and a holiness and a righteousness that would blind us and strike us to the ground if we were ever really to lay eyes on it. That's who he is. Jesus Christ is in the ultimate high position. But when he came to earth on the cross, Jesus Christ took the ultimate low position. Because when Jesus Christ came to earth, this this Lord of glory, when he came to earth, he didn't come as a powerful person. He He didn't even come as a middle class person. Jesus came as a poor person, and not just any poor person. On the cross, Jesus Christ became the poorest of the poor and the lowest of the low. You know how in verse 2, James talks about the poor person wearing the shabby clothing? That word shabby isn't a word that just means like worn out or, or, um, or old. It's a word that actually literally means filthy. It means disgusting. It means repulsive and revolting, friends, when Jesus Christ came to earth on the cross, he became revolting to God so that you could be beautiful to God. Jesus Christ on the cross was clothed in all the filth of our sin and our humiliation so that we could be robed in the beauty of his glory and his exaltation. Don't you see? Jesus Christ took our low position on the cross so that we could have his high position. 
He got the judgment that we deserve so that we could receive mercy. And when you see Jesus doing that for you, all of a sudden that gives you the basis of a radically new identity. You know, in this world, the world that we live in, it's very easy. Rich people are often almost inevitably defined by what they have, right? Rich people are defined by their resources. They're defined by what we have. And, and, and poor people in the world are so often defined by what they don't have. But the gospel says that you are not defined by what you have. Neither are you defined by what you don't have. You are defined by what's been given to you. You are defined by Jesus Christ giving his life for you on the cross. And when you see him doing that, all of a sudden you have a radically new identity. And when that happens, now you're able to go out into the world and start living in a way that makes you know that, that your own spiritual poverty is real. All of a sudden what happens is you begin to get into relationship with the poor. You begin to get close to the poor. And you do it because you realize that you actually need the poor more than they need you. I want to tell you a story about a man named Jean Vanier. Um, Jean Vanier is uh, a Christian theologian and philosopher and humanitarian, but what he's probably best known for is the founder of a group of communities around the world known as L'Arche, um, which is French for the Ark. L'Arche communities are places where people with and without uh, mental disabilities where they live together and where they care for one another. Many of the people that live in these communities uh, have uh, profound disabilities. In fact, some of them can't even speak or take care of themselves. Now, when he was a young man, Jean Vanier did not set out to create these communities. In fact, he says that when he was a young man, he says, all my life I had been taught to climb the ladder to seek promotion, to compete, to be the best, to win prizes. This is what society teaches. But in 1964, Jean Vanier um, felt that Jesus was calling him to, to take two men that had been living in a mental asylum. They were in an institution. And to take these two men and, and to begin living with them. Their names were Raphael and Philippe. And it was the beginning of the first L'Arche community. And Jean Vanier says that when he began living with these men, he began to make certain discoveries. One of the first things he discovered was this. Uh, it's easy to think that people with severe brain damage, that that's their greatest pain, but he says it's not. He says that people with severe brain damage, that's not their greatest pain. It's the pain of rejection. He says even though they couldn't speak, so often he would look into their eyes and it was almost like their eyes were crying out to him for communion saying, am I important to you? Will you be my friend? Do I have any value to you? He said that, that there was so much fear inside of their hearts that they were going to be rejected and found unlovable because they saw themselves as being dirty and evil and no good, that nobody could love them like that. But as important and painful as that discovery was, Jean Vanier says that there was an even more painful discovery that he made when he began living with Raphael and Philippe. And I'm going to read to you how Jean Vanier puts it himself. He says, When you've been taught from an early age to be first, to win, and then suddenly you sense that you're being called by Jesus to go down the ladder and share your life with those who are poor and marginalized, a real struggle breaks out. As I began living with Raphael and Philippe, I began to see all the hardness of my own heart. Raphael and the others were crying out simply for friendship, and I didn't know how to respond because of the other forces within me pulling me to go up the ladder. 
But over the years, the people I live with, these poor people, he says, they have been teaching and healing me. They've been teaching me that behind the need to win, there are my own fears and anguish. The fear of being devalued or pushed aside. The fear of opening up my heart and of being vulnerable or of feeling helpless in front of others. He says, I discovered something which I had never confronted before, that there were immense forces of darkness and hatred within my own heart. At particular moments of fatigue or stress, I saw forces of hate rising up inside of me and the capacity to hurt someone who was weak and was provoking me. That is what caused me the most pain to discover who I really am. I did not want to admit all the garbage inside of me. It took time for me to discover that their cry for communion was revealing my own poverty and my own wounds. People may come to our communities because they want to serve the poor, but they will often only stay once they have discovered that they themselves are the poor. And then they discover something extraordinary, that Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, not to those who serve the poor. I think that we can only truly experience God, meet Jesus, receive the good news in and through our own poverty because the kingdom of God belongs to the poor, the poor in spirit, the poor who are crying out for love. Dear ones, are you able, are you willing to go down the ladder? That doesn't mean becoming something that you're not. It means realizing what you really are. The gospel gives you the basis for a radically new identity. In the world, rich people are defined by what they have, and poor people are defined by what they don't have. But the gospel says that you are not defined by what you have, neither are you defined by what you don't have. The gospel says you're defined by what's been given to you. It says that you're defined by Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and that when you see him giving his life for you, When you see this Lord of glory, the one who existed from all eternity at the top of the only ladder that matters, when you see him giving his life for you, all of a sudden that puts a value upon you. That puts a significance upon you. That puts a burden, a weight of glory upon your life to which nothing else in this world can compare. Do you see Jesus doing that for you? Dear ones, God calls us, this church, this community, to be a place, a community of justice and mercy. But the only way that we can do that is if we see Jesus clothed in our poverty so that we can be clothed in his glory. Do you see him doing that for you? Get close to the poor.